So it's the end of 2018, and last year we got together um, here, John Farrell, the now co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome back, John. Thanks for having me, Chris. And Stacy, the other co-director, Stacy Mitchell, welcome back. Nice to be here. So I started to say that last year, the three of us got together for Building Local Power, and we talked about monopolies and sort of the year in review and things like that, and thought we'd do it again. Um, the big question on my mind is, Will Santa slay the monopolies? That's my big hope for the end of the year. <laughs> How long have you been working on that question, Chris? <laughs> Michelle, Michelle and I decided that it's probably in bad taste, but I should do it anyway. But I, I came up with it about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> So we're going to talk something about Amazon. We're going to talk about uh, utility, where that's going, and um, and how that's going to um, really shape the future. I mean, you know, it's funny. We were talking a little bit about how we're afraid people won't think it's very exciting. But frankly, this is just the future of, like, whether or not the planet is, is habitable, what, what price we're paying for energy and things like that. So we're going to talk about what John's been looking at and the timeline on which the entire electric system is changing and where we get our energy from. And we'll talk a little bit about broadband regarding AT&T buying Time Warner and the Department of Justice really trying to um, challenge that, even though it has kind of a flawed argument and it seems clear that the um, world is stacked against it. Uh, but let's start, Stacy, um, with Amazon, a year in review. And is it two years ago you released your big Amazon report around this time? That's right. We released uh, Amazon's Stranglehold in November of 2016. And I, I think when we did that, I mean, that was the time there was no real opposition to Amazon. There was no even real popular sense that there was anything even wrong with what Amazon was doing. That's right. I mean, it's it's changed dramatically in the last two years, and especially this year. I mean, I think the Whole Foods acquisition in 2017 was a moment when people kind of woke up and looked around and said, oh, there's this thing called Amazon, and they really have big intentions. And then this year was a moment when people started to really look at what those intentions are and became increasingly concerned about the ways that Amazon's tentacles are reaching into every part of the economy and not just dominating markets, but really uh, controlling markets in ways that are deeply disturbing. I'm curious, John, did you have a, a point in this year in which you felt that that became clear to you, that there was kind of this popular sentiment building against Amazon? In a couple of different instances, and it, it's hard to distinguish sometimes between what I started to hear as just sort of a purveyor of news and what I started to hear because I work with Stacy and her stuff comes across my feed. But I think, you know, I think there was, you know, that acquisition, I think, got some people starting thinking. But then, you know, Stacy has been relentless in terms of putting out more information to help people understand what's going on. So she had a report about procurement and the way in which Amazon is involved in public procurement that I saw, you know, circulate in a lot of circles. I saw her stuff about HQ2 as that decision was kind of coming to an end. So I, it's to me, it's like within the last six months, all of a sudden that has gone from being like, there were a couple different like select pockets of people that were caring about this, economists, you know, folks that look at online shopping or something like that. And all of a sudden now everybody's talking about it. Like this is the thing to focus on when you talk about concentration in the economy. Yeah, I think that's right. And a lot of this is because of the so-called HQ2 sweepstakes that Amazon set up. I mean, as people recall, about a year ago, Amazon announced that they were going to create a, quote, second headquarters. 
And they were going to open up this bidding process and cities across the country, 238 cities across the country, a few in Canada, uh, submitted proposals, went to kind of acrobatic links to put together all this information for Amazon and also packaged it with a lot of giveaways in many cases, subsidies, tax incentives. Um, And then Amazon, at some point in the year, uh, announced that they'd whittled the list down to 20, and there was another, like, flurry of media coverage. And then something began to happen in right around September of this year. I think a lot of people started to realize that this whole thing was a ruse. I mean, it was like it had worked as a publicity stunt for them for months and months and months, and then something started to shift in the public consciousness. And it was really interesting to watch because the reporting started to change. Um, Amazon, the way that they talked about it started to change. So it was really clear that people suddenly started to think, oh, this is a company that um, is using its power to gain government favors, to manipulate all these local governments into turning over this incredibly valuable data, and that this is really a ploy by a monopolist, basically, that's that's a threat not just to the economy and like the opportunity that we have as workers and producers, but it's like a threat to democracy and to like our ability to like run our own cities and our own lives. Yeah, and one of the things that I remember is when it was announced, I felt that you and Greg Leroy were the ones popping up on my Twitter feed, the only ones that were saying, this isn't a, a great deal, this is a problem. And even at times, I remember thinking, oh, like I agree, but I don't want to alienate you know, my few followers that still listen to me um, by you know, just harping on Amazon. But, but definitely toward the end, it seemed like everyone was saying, oh, this is, uh, this is not good, and, and this is a sign that something's wrong. Um, now, let me ask you, Stacey, you were on um, the, the Hassan Minaj show, the Patriot, uh, Patriot Act, um, on Netflix, um, talking about this, an entire episode about Amazon and antitrust. To me, that's another sign that things have shifted. Um, what did you take away from, from like a popular show aimed at a, you know, a, a, at a non-policy audience talking about this? Yeah, that's right. He did, you know, this whole huge long segment on antitrust, on monopoly policy, all focused on Amazon. It was super well researched and smart and hit all of these. I mean, he was talking about the consumer welfare standard, you know, which is the (laughs) bad standard that was adopted in the 1980s that's really hamstrung our ability to deal with corporate power. Um, and that a lot of people are now calling, you know, for that to be changed and, and gotten rid of. So, you know, and I got a little, as you mentioned, a little cameo uh, along the way in, in his montage on Amazon. And um, I just, it was so encouraging because I thought, you know, there's a way in which uh, this has entered the mainstream popular discussion. I couldn't have ever guessed that this would happen. Um, but it's critical because I think, you know, it, we have, as you noted, economists and some policymakers and other folks who are looking at this and are deeply concerned about Amazon and about monopolies in general. But what is going to actually make action happen is going to be popular will. And so the fact that this issue is resonating, I think people in their own lives know that there is something fundamentally wrong with the economy. We've got polling on this now that shows that most people, vast majority of people in both parties believe that monopoly is a problem, that big companies have too much power, that our local economies, our job opportunities are all being squeezed by these companies. So, I mean, it's interesting in the context of 
of Amazon because there's this way in which we're we're sort of of two minds. A, a lot of people enjoy Amazon as consumers and at the same time are deeply concerned about its power. And those things can be true uh, at once. And we really saw that this year. Let's talk a little bit about New York um, and, and its relation to Amazon, because, John, you'd mentioned, I think, the surprise um, that, that we have with kind of a, an actual local organizing, kind of an uprising against uh, the state and the city of New York for welcoming Amazon in. Um, you know, what surprised you about that? What I find really surprising about the reaction in New York is that I thought that even though people were like Stacy and, and many others then that had picked up this thread we're going to criticize Amazon for trying to soak up all these public benefits that folks would just shrug their shoulders and be like, well, that's the way the game is played. Look at another town's going to give out a bunch of money. And of course, it's going to be a town that we thought would get Amazon anyway without having to do any bidding. Whoop-de-doo. And then all of a sudden, we start to see New York City Council members retweeting Stacy's stuff and saying, hey, this is really kind of crappy. Like, this might not actually even be a good deal for us. We don't want to be an HQ2 city. You know, we could more profitably invest this in a lot of other local initiatives. And so I, I think that's where, for me, it's, it felt like this notion that Amazon is a problem really has some traction when you have cities willing to turn down the potential to host this headquarters and say, actually, we have lots of other ways we think I can su- we can support our economy that are a much better deal. Yeah, Stacey, I'm, I'm curious as well. I, my impression is actually even some of the city council members who may have signed off on Amazon in that deal to begin with then changed their tune. That's right. I mean, there was a, a public letter of like support from a variety of like state lawmakers and I think some city councilors as well. I, I'm not quite sure who all that went out to, but a lot of people signed on to it. And a number of them, uh, when this deal was announced, uh, rescinded their support of it. And, you know, I think John is right. I mean, I was surprised and, and it's it's been great to see. I sort of expected that people would be maybe upset about the subsidies and there maybe be some debate about getting something in return for those giveaways, that kind of thing. But instead, what we're seeing is people are like, definitely no subsidies. And we don't even think we want Amazon here at all. And it's both about, we don't want to be part of supporting this monopoly and all of the negative impacts that it's having. But it's also like looking at what this is going to mean for Queens and all the ways in which local people are going to lose because of Amazon. And just it's just galling too when you have the world's richest man. I mean, Jeff Bezos is worth like something like $160 billion. It fluctuates, but something like that. Um, You know, the idea that taxpayers in a state where the school systems are really struggling and there are a lot of other problems are going to be ponying up this incredible amount, billions of dollars, is just so galling to people. There's something about that that I think has really uh, crystallized what's at stake with Amazon. You know, something I've seen from some of the people I follow who are contrarian by nature is um, is a claim that New York is still better off with Amazon there because many of these deals are structured that if Amazon doesn't create a certain number of jobs, then uh, they won't get these subsidies and that the subsidies are supposedly coming out of taxes that Amazon would be paying. And so I'm curious if you can respond to the argument that New York, even though they're giving all these subsidies, is better off because Amazon's coming because of how it's structured. 
Yeah, I mean, Cuomo, Governor Cuomo in New York, who, you know, is the lead negotiator of this terrible deal. I mean, he's made this argument. He's made the exact argument that you're saying right now. Um, and I just think it's it's ridiculous for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the reason Amazon is going to New York and also, you know, the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., is because that's where they think they can find and attract the tech talent that they need. I mean, that's the only reason. The reason they split the 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 HQ2 into two locations is because they recognize that they wouldn't be able to find enough of the right kinds of workers in, in, in one location. So there are very few places that actually work for what it is that Amazon needs. Um, so, you know, a smart negotiating strategy on the part of the city is to recognize that and say, oh, you need to be here. You need New York. <laughs> so what is it that you're going to do to support this city to help us alleviate uh, affordable housing, the strain on the transportation? transportation system. I mean, that's the right way to go into that negotiation uh, instead of let me figure out how we can give away, you know, the public bank uh, to a private, uh, uh, you know, entity. So HQ2, I mean, this is a certainly a national story if for no other reason than the 200 some cities that gave all this data to Amazon. But it's really part of this larger um, issue of how the economy is working or not working for communities across the country. Um, you just did a building local power talking about the dollar stores and you released a report on the dollar stores. And I think it's safe to say it swamped our Twitter feed. Um, there's been a lot of reaction. I was just at an event about preemption and this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, I'm from Louisiana and I love the dollar store report. Can you get me a connection to Stacy? You know, this thing, this thing went everywhere. So, so I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the reaction to it and, and and now that it's several weeks since it's out what your thoughts are I think you're right like the the story of Amazon you know going to the Washington DC metro and, and New York metro is part of this story of as the economy increasingly concentrates and you have these like superstar firms you also have a few metros that are like the superstar metros and I you know I don't want to gloss over inequality within those places there are a lot of neighborhoods that are part of those cities that are really suffering and losing out um, then across the country, you know, the, the other part of the HQ2 story are all the places that have been left behind by this economy that have had their economic foundations pulled out from under them because mergers have caused like the local plant or the local, you know, the, the headquarters of the regional company that's been swallowed up is now no longer there. The local bank is gone. The main street businesses are gone. You know, the farming economy has been screwed because of agribusiness. So, you know, it's all these second tier cities and the in rural areas and small towns are really struggling and one of the things that at ILSR we've been getting a lot of email for the last couple of years about dollar stores people writing us and saying I've got dollar general coming in and we're really concerned about what it's going to do to the community or maybe after it's come in the impacts that it's having and so we decided this year to take a deep look at this and Marie Donahue on our staff uh, led our research on this and and started looking at this question of dollar stores you know dollar stores had a uh, the two major chains which are Dollar General and uh, Dollar Tree which owns Family Dollar um, they had about 20,000 locations in 2011 at the end of the financial crisis. And today they have about 30,000 locations uh, and they have plans to grow to a total of 50,000 locations in the next few years. They're, they're expanding in places where they feel like people are, you know, that the economy is hopeless and that they can find, you know, sort of a permanent state of poverty and economic distress. 
I'm just so e- eager on this point, like, and, I, and I'm curious because I think I, I saw this reflected. I didn't read the full Dollar General Store Don't Fire Me um, report, <laughs> um, but um, one of the things I saw was that much like during the subprime crisis, we saw that banks were were really treating um, non-white applicants, particularly African American applicants, worse. And so even if you had a higher education, you were getting worse loan terms than uh, than a person who had a much lower education but had white skin. Now one of the things I thought I saw was that Dollar General, the dollar stores specifically, um, were going into areas based more on not not just low-income neighborhoods, but specifically um, higher incidences of other races, that mm-hmm. people that are not white, African-Americans, Latino perhaps. That's exactly right. So as we were doing this research, we got a call from a city councilor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Vanessa Hall Harper. And what we learned is that the city of Tulsa has over 50 dollar stores. And she told us that many of them are concentrated in her district, which is North Tulsa. It's a predominantly African-American neighborhood. We've now, since this report came out, we've had we've just been inundated with email messages and Twitter messages, people telling their own dollar store stories from you know New Orleans, Detroit, um, rural Louisiana, and there's this consistent pattern of these companies targeting areas based on race. Right. It's not just, I think it's not just um, poverty. It's not just low income. It's powerlessness that they're going after because they want to trap those people into that cycle. There are two explanations that we've come up with for, for why that is. And, you know, we can't prove that these are true. It's just our guesses kind of looking at the information. Uh, One is that dollar stores target areas that already lack grocery stores. And we know that banks are less likely to lend to African-American entrepreneurs. We know that supermarket chains often bypass black neighborhoods. And so those are places that are already are food deserts. And so the dollar stores see an opportunity. And then I think you're right. I think another part of this may be that they think, well, these are areas that don't have political power. I mean, in Tulsa, there are dollar stores that are sometimes just a few blocks away. I mean, they're packing them in to this district. And I, you know, I wonder if these companies think, well, if we tried to do that in a whiter neighborhood, we probably wouldn't get away with it. But, you know, there's a lack of political power, at least that they perceive. Um, in the case of Tulsa, the neighborhood is, has fought back, and they've now passed an ordinance that, you know, has become a model that cities across the country are looking at. So it's great to have, you know, a story of some of that political power coming back. Stacey, to, to me it seems, you know, I saw one of the th- threads on Twitter in a response to this I thought was really striking because they described what is happening with dollar stores as sort of sub, the subprime economy, like the permanent subprime economy that, you know, the, the financial crisis was caused by banks creating all these, you know, tricky loans to extract wealth from, you know, lower income folks, from people of color who had traditionally not had access to credit, thought they were finally getting a chance to get into the American dream and got utterly screwed. And now in its wake, there's like the subprime everything, you know, first there's the subprime mortgage. Now there's the subprime grocery store, or the subprime retail store. And and so, you know, you used the term food desert there, which is that one plausible explanation, right? They're coming in where there hasn't been a grocery store, but in some ways it's more like grocery deforestation, right? Like it's Wall Street mm-hmm. coming in and saying, essentially, we're going to eviscerate this neighborhood by not lending to the people that live there, to the entrepreneurs that would provide the full service grocery store. Uh, or any of the, the the other kinds of services. Instead, we're going to back these extractive companies that come in, build, you know, overwhelmingly to drive out other local merchants that would help retain some local wealth and not even give people access to the basic things that most people expect in a neighborhood, like a grocery store with fresh produce. 
That's right. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about, you know, the way that the capital system, the way that, that uh, Wall Street works in terms of where capital is allocated. The fact that we don't, don't have as strong a local banking system as we used to have um, that's really driving a lot of these decisions. I also don't think you, you, you can't overlook Walmart's role in all of this. I mean, Walmart, you know, has marched across the country and devastated a lot of the local food system, a lot of local grocery stores, a lot of local retail. Um, Walmart now controls 25% of the food system in the country. Uh, One out of every four grocery dollars go to Walmart. And that's meant that there are neighborhoods and small towns that have really nothing. You know, Uh, Walmart in the region has pulled all the dollars away for the most part and then left these places that are like a denuded landscape. They're like a, you know, it's like an ecology, you know, in a college, it's like when you have a landscape that's, that's been compromised in some way. And then the dollar stores are like the invasive species that, you know, prey on that and just multiply and come in. Uh, And in doing so, you know, they're not just like a symptom or a byproduct of the deeper problem. They're also making it worse. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're coming in in such numbers that they make it hard for new local businesses and grocers to get started. You know, and in some cases, I mean, they're not just going into food deserts, as as we talk about in the report, there are a lot of places where they're going in, and there is still a local grocer that managed to hang on through Walmart and all the rest of it. And the dollar store is the thing that tips them over uh, and, you know, causes them to close. So, you know, you're right. We're, we're increasingly kind of living in this world that's like two different places. You know, there's uh, there's Whole Foods land and then there's dollar store land and people don't cross over very much. And if you live in Whole Foods land, it's very hard to even see that there is a dollar store land. So uh, my turn to ask the question. So the the first one I have is, you know, it's the end of the year uh, and uh, we're in our big annual fundraising drive to try to scare up the donations that matter so much uh, to us and to what we're able to do in 2019. So, Chris, why do you think uh, people who are listening to this should, you know, chip in to help ILSR? Well, I have to say, we give recommendations at the end of the show traditionally, but uh, I thought I'd, I'd plug a book that I think explains some of it, and it's a book that we've talked about some internally, um, and I hear talked about all over the place. It's called Winners Take All by Anand um, Garadaras, and it explains how I think a lot of the big nonprofit organizations, um, they're really trying to figure out how to tackle the problems without changing the structure of the economy and things like that, and it's a great explainer as to how this develops and and how these people think and that sort of a thing. And in my mind, it really solidified the importance of organizations like ours. Um, And so I would just really encourage people to like maybe read the Wikipedia summary of it, come to ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. Then buy the book from a local bookstore, read it, and give to us again in 2019. Um, but the, the fundamental effect is that it's organizations like ours. I mean, in particularly, I would plug Stacy. There's a reason we put so much emphasis on your work at the end of the year. There's no one else doing the kinds of stuff you're doing. And we need people to support that to make sure that we can keep doing it. I would put it even just more specifically in the same way that we started our conversation with Stacy about Amazon, asking the question about when did this hit the news? I think you can trace back in some ways, the entire national conversation about why Amazon is a problem as a platform monopoly, as a company that wants to control all the, all the methods of online commerce, 
to ILSR's work. It was really Stacy doing the deep digging to understand how Amazon's platform worked, what it meant for local merchants, how it undermined cities through its use of public subsidies for avoiding sales taxes, and how it uses its platform to co-opt merchants to understand their products and their customers and then to take them. ILSR tries to do that in all of the different pieces of the economy to help us understand how is it that the players that are out there work, who is it that has the power in the economy, and and in what way are they trying to use that power to either advantage or disadvantage our communities. And so Stacy's work does that and with, with Amazon. Your work does that to help people understand that basic question of access to the digital economy. In my work, we talk about the fact that energy is this opportunity to transform to not only an environmentally benign way of doing business, but a way that communities can keep wealth in their economy. Uh, you know, our Waste to Wealth program talks all about all of these inputs and in, uh, uh, into our system that can be preserved rather than burning them or throwing them away. And, and we fundamentally do that in a way to explain how there are these incumbent powers that have a way of doing things that may not be good for our economy and how to understand not only why that might be harmful to us, but how we can solve that at the local level. And I, there's just not other, a lot of other organizations that take that perspective. I see Stacy leaning in, but I just wanted to say that's ILSR.org <laughs> slash donate. <laughs> Well, I want to say first, I, I appreciate all that praise. Uh, we have some great allies who have also been leading the way in uh, grappling with what Amazon is all about and helping people understand it. You know, folks like uh, the Open Markets Institute, Lena Khan, at, uh, uh, who's a fellow at Columbia right now, um, Scott Galloway. I mean, there's some really good work being done out there. And so it's great, great company to be in. I think one of the things that, uh, you know, that I really appreciate about ILSR is that we not only do the big picture analysis about concentrated power across all these different sectors, but we're on the ground helping communities like do something about it right now, you know, building broadband, uh, municipally owned broadband networks, taking control of their energy systems from the big uh, utilities and like rethinking how they want to have electricity uh, produced in the future and what that's going to look like that actually meets local needs. Um, You know, helping the city of Tulsa figure out a way to keep dollar stores from continuing to proliferate. I mean, those are the kinds of like practical stuff that we do every day at the same time that we're moving these bigger ideas. And uh, it's a great organization. So ILSR.org slash donate. And, you know, I I think the one other thing I want to say is that individual donations are really important. You know, we are supported uh, by foundation grants and those are incredible. But Individual donations do make up a significant share of our funding. They're the funding that gives us some flexibility uh, to do some of the most important work that we do. And those individual donations, they come in amounts of $50 and $500, and they really matter. So uh, really appreciate everyone who's listening if you uh, can think about us as, as we head into the end of the year. And I hope you find that to be uh, somewhat useful in terms of the work that we're doing, as well as a a pitch for you to support our work. Um, John, in the few minutes we have left, let's do the abbreviated, super fast version of Utility 3.0. You've been working on this for several years. What's changed and what do you expect maybe a little bit in 2019 to be different um, in terms of how things have moved along as we transition from this monopoly command and control grid to one that's, um, you know, more broken up and has more local control in it. What I think is really exciting that's happening in the energy sector, Chris, is is really that this is sort of the year of self-reliance. Uh, and it all it's all about batteries. So if you're holding a, a smartphone, maybe you're listening to this podcast on a smartphone, if you have a laptop, 
batteries are everywhere all of a sudden. They are becoming an integral part of our digital economy, and all of a sudden they're entering the electricity business in a way that's super exciting. Because now instead of just being able to produce some energy from solar panels on my house, which has become incredibly popular, almost a million customers in California have solar on their own rooftops, for example. Now I have a way I can store that energy when the sun isn't shining, or I can store it to use it at a different time, or I can simply be resilient to when the grid goes down. Um, and so it's really changing the game. Um, you know, this is a year where there were huge increases in people installing solar behind the meter, which is to say they installed it with a solar array. They were using it to store energy at home. Um, it's also, interestingly enough, a year in which a major U.S. Midwest utility just announced that it's going carbon-free by 2050. And these things are happening at the same time and in some interesting ways and creating some interesting tensions. Right. And one of the things I saw um, is something that I think we predicted uh, 15 years ago when we were in grad school, maybe maybe 12 years ago. I don't remember. It's, I'm getting old now, I guess. Um, but there was this discussion then about the renewable energy standards or the renewable portfolio standards, depending on um, what they were called at the time. But the idea that the that the the major utilities would have to supply a certain amount of their electricity from renewable sources. And there's all these arguments. Could it be met? Was it too aggressive? Would it destabilize the grid? And it seems like all of the utilities are meeting them way ahead of time, and they're setting more aggressive goals now. Absolutely. You know, I think what, what's fascinating is the, the argument 10 years ago, for example, was can we actually transition the fuel sources of our electricity system? Can we actually rely increasingly on renewable energy? And the answer is absolutely. At this point, you have several states where at least a quarter of the electricity that's generated on an annual basis is coming from wind or coming from solar. The question we have now uh, that we're really starting to wrestle with now in 2018 is, do we still need big utilities in order to meet those ambitious goals, or can we do it in a decentralized manner? Can we make these decisions at a city level, at a household level, at a community level? you know, because we have solar, because we have energy storage. You know, one super exciting thing that we looked at this year was we did this this time-lapse graphic of all the solar that was installed in California. And as I said before, it was almost a million individual people deciding to install solar on their home or their business over the past decade. And it's enough capacity to replace like three nuclear power plants uh, in terms of instantaneous power delivery. It's huge. And, and, but the bigger thing, even than the amount of power that's generated by all those installations, is the fact that all of these people made that decision not because they wanted to be little power plant operators, but because it made financial sense for them. And that's really the crux of what's happening all of a sudden in the energy business, is you have all of these individual actors are, are wanting to act together, individually or collectively, that can make decisions that impact our energy system, but that aren't done through this traditional top-down planning method and that don't rely on the incumbent utility. John, one of the things that I've found in our work is this sense coming out of Washington, D.C. and often state capitals that you need to have one big entity. And even when we have successful small entities, the first question I get from people is, will it scale? When, you know, what you're talking about here, these, these people who have made these decisions, that's what's changing things. It's not convincing the utilities that they want to go green. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that it doesn't have an impact, but fundamentally, what's changing our utility system is all of the decisions that are made in a decentralized fashion. I see that in our broadband work, where the best networks in this nation are often built by municipalities or locally driven companies that are rooted in their communities. But 
I just feel like a lot of people that, that attain high power, they're, they're used to thinking this big way, and they just cannot imagine change coming from lots of small actions. It's really funny, too, because, you know, for 100 years at least, we've known that mass producing things, turning things into commodities, allowing people to make individual decisions is what makes stuff available to everybody, whether it's for cars with the Model T and Henry Ford, or whether with its batteries and smartphones and computers and computer chips or transistors. I mean, all of these things that move our economy forward in the digital age can be mass produced, but they don't have to be all controlled by the same person. They can be purchased and installed at small scale. You know, solar panels, I have solar panels on my roof now, 27 panels. It's the same technology that you would have in an enormous power plant that would be built by a utility company. And for the batteries, you know, the battery that I could put in the wall in my home for battery storage or the battery the utility could put at their substation is all made up of the same little cells, you know, except it's thousands and thousands and millions and millions of them. And the real difference is that because we don't have to deploy that capital in billion-dollar chunks to accomplish good things in the energy sector, those decisions can be made by anybody. So you're absolutely right. People have this notion like we can only make decisions if they're big. And especially in the energy sector where we're facing this climate crisis, people are like, well, the only thing we can do is big things because this problem is so big. Missing the fact that all of these little decisions often add up to faster reactions and, and more substantial steps towards solving the problem. And the perfect example of this is, you know, in Minnesota right now, this utility company, this big utility, it serves half the customers in the state, has said, we're going carbon-free by 2050. We don't totally know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And, and, and the thing is, like, it's a great commitment. I'm excited about it because it sort of helps set a standard in the public consciousness for what can happen. And yet at the same time, we've just installed like hundreds of megawatts of solar in community solar arrays that are owned by third parties that are subscribed to by tens of thousands of Minnesota residents and businesses, and the utility had nothing to do with it. And so, you know, it's people sort of miss that fact. And unfortunately, what's going to happen is that when the big player decides to make this commitment, they also have some big asks. They're going to be at the legislature this year saying, hey, in order to meet that goal that we set, we have these two big nuclear power plants. They're getting kind of expensive to run. We're going to need to fix them up, and we would like you to take the risk of fixing them up for us. It's probably going to be billions of dollars. And the worry that I have is because they made a big commitment that people see as important, and because they're a big player, we're going to make a big, give them a big handout. Instead of thinking about how could we spend best spend, for example, $5 billion on clean energy. Is it really to give a handout to the big guy, or would we be better off investing it in all the ways that small individuals or cities could make investments in clean energy? So that's the work for 2019. It sure is. The deep irony, of course, is that um, the climate crisis, um, you know, is a pollution problem that comes from um, billions of non-point source pollution. I mean, like it's literally like one of the biggest problems we have to deal with, and it doesn't come from a single source. And so, you know, I think people just they don't understand the, the power. They don't think about it in those terms. No, although ironically, you know, the folks most responsible for it and who own most of the pollution are the very largest publicly traded companies that have invested deeply in fossil fuel infrastructure, which is why even as this Midwest utility is making carbon-free promises, they're out there asking to buy a new natural gas power plant. Or they're saying as part of this deal, well, we don't want to have to close any power plants early. 
And so the question is, okay, so if you're going to have to make these carbon commitments, are you essentially saying that we have to buy you off? Because in a market economy, in a capitalist economy, we often let the better solutions outcompete the other ones. And so my question is always, let's give this playing field a trial. Let's see how else that we can solve these problems that doesn't involve having to buy off the big player just because they're big. So we're going to wrap up there, I think. We were going to talk a little bit about a broadband topic, but let me encourage you instead to check out uh, the Broadband Bits podcast that we did with our year-end interview because you'll be able to hear Lisa Gonzalez, um, Katie Keenbaum, and Jess Del Fiaco, um, two voices who are new to our podcast, uh, talking about some of the things we saw the course of the year. And um, and then maybe people will have a better sense of all the work that comes from um, the teams at ILSR rather than just uh, those of us that happen to be at the head of them. So as we as we wrap up, um, we have a couple maybe closing comments, but we want to wish everyone a, a happy new year and uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all that stuff. Hanukkah's already passed, so we're, we're going to leave that one out, I guess. What's your new year's resolution? I want to be more daring. I think there's a lot of potential. I think I played it too safe in 2018. I think there's people need to to get out there um, and be a little bit more bold and recognize that there's a massive hunger for better solutions. We have those and we need to find more ways of getting them out there. So I want to, I want to try and be more bold in 2019. That's great. Thank you all. We'll be back in 2019. There's going to be a lot of great stuff to talk about. There's new research coming out. So uh, please come back. Thanks to everyone who's listened. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, please consider supporting our work with a donation. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, Zach Fried, and Hippa Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell, joined today by John Farrell and Chris Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. An earlier version of this podcast referenced maps of dollar stores in Tulsa that misrepresented the relative strength of the correlation between dollar stores and household income. These maps have been updated in our feature on dollar stores, and the podcast audio and transcript has been edited to correct the error. Thank you.